are listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for elder law attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by elder law attorneys for elder law attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing elder law attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the field of elder law, marketing, and practice development. So welcome back. Today we are continuing our conversation with Dari Pogash, who is the staff attorney at the American Bar Association Commission on Law and Aging. And we're talking about the important topic of adult guardianships, challenges, and reform that needs to happen. Um, so as I mentioned, Dari is the staff attorney with the ABA, and she works on improving practices and providing education to the legal profession on adult guardianships and other decision-making options. Um, she also works um, with elder abuse and supportive decision-making. She has substantive experience with policy and legislative analysis. Um, she presents at national conferences on advances in the state guardianship laws, testifies at legislative hearings and written public reports, and makes recommendations for the improvement for local laws and practices. So in our last episode with our discussion, Daria and I discussed you know, kind of an overview of guardianship. We talked about um, some of the ongoing issues with guardianships and things that are affecting individuals that are under a guardianship. So I really recommend listening to the the first episode. Um, And then today we're going to really delve into legislative reforms and and trends that are occurring nationally. So Dari, welcome back. Thank you. Um, So you know, in our past conversation, like I said, we were kind of talking about the issues that you see in guardianships across the United States. Um, and we were really teeing up to talk about the reform that's that's necessary. Um, so can you kind of just address some of those concerns and, and things, reforms and practices and procedures that you see? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, and you know, in our last episode, we we talked about legislative reform. And I made the point that we actually have seen very strong legislative reform in the last 25 or 30 years among states. But the question is, how do you turn those uh, those really solid laws into practice? And uh, we, at the commission, we spent a lot of time researching and thinking about this. And there's, there's um, a need for several kinds of systemic changes. First, I think there's a need for, and again, this is an example of a lot of state laws now will require courts to consider whether less restrictive options are available prior before appointing a guardian, meaning the court should go through an analysis of the person's um, resources, of their community, of what kind of services are available to that person that would allow the person to perhaps receive some decision-making assistance, whether it's the appointment of a Social Security representative payee or perhaps someone uh, taking on the, the duty of agent and a power of attorney that would allow the person to um, maintain their independence. And I think we can, so while the laws are requiring that, we're not really seeing that in practice. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm gonna talk more in a minute about how we could we could move towards that. But I think really you're talking about a real cultural change in the way that we think about the kinds of the individuals who come before courts. You know, if someone ends up in, in a situation where a guardianship is being considered, it's it's 
it's a very serious situation. So culturally, you know, even before the person comes to court, our service providers thinking about decision supports are just do family members know what's available to them before they come to court for guardianship and our attorney is familiar and are they counseling clients on what kind of other options are out there. That's why I'll just give one more plug for our practical tool, which I described in the last session, um, which I think is just a great resource, especially for new attorneys, because what it does is it helps attorneys to organize their client interview and make sure they cover all options that might be available other than guardianship before they get to guardianship with all kinds of great resources. And it's available for free on our website. Um, procedural safeguards, again, this is something that you can legislate. You can require notice. You can, re you know, you can require the person to, the person, um, you can make it a strong, strong standards for a person's appearance at a hearing. Effective assistance of counsel is very important. You know, Rebecca, you were sharing with me that you practice in a county where um, you had a recent change, which I think is really great, where now counsel is being appointed to every person who's being considered for the appointment of a guardianship. Is yeah, that correct? That is. So I, I that practice right? outside yeah. the Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania, and there has been a lot of reform in our state. Um, and and like you and I were mm -hmm. talking about, one of one of the biggest changes has been having an attorney appointed for the alleged incapacitated person in every every case, um, which again creates a whole nother then challenge, which is finding attorneys that are willing to serve in that capacity. Um, right. And and the funding for the attorney's fees, I think, you know, we need to, yeah. to acknowledge that too, because it's, you know, it's, it's important. You know, the, and that that I think is often right. a barrier. And I think it's important that you mention too that elder law attorneys really need to be in tune to all of these other options um, and looking at these options before going straight to a guardianship. Um, and I think that that education piece is so important for all attorneys to kind of be up to date on you know other supportive decision making options other than just going right to the guardianship you know, looking at the least restrictive alternatives. Um, and I think that, you know, that presents so many challenges as well, because at least in Pennsylvania, um, you know, a power of attorney sometimes can only get you so far when certain decisions need to be made. Um, so a lot of times, you know, we don't have an right. option other than um, pursuing a guardianship. Right. And, you know, I think some of that is, um, that I always say that, you know, it's about what options are actually available. And so part of what guardianship reform is about is strengthening the availability of those options, right? Um, and, you know, whether it's through, like, like I mentioned, through judicial education or lawyer education. But I think also, you know, um, something this may not be, I think, an analogy as we talk about how we should be teaching decision making to kids in school and starting at an earlier age with, um, giving people the tools that they need to make their own right. decisions. And then, you know, getting back to what other kind of systemic changes I think are, are necessary. There's this whole issue of how, the role of capacity determinations in the appointment of a guardian. So what you often see is there's a, a case brought to appoint a guardian and the court orders an evaluate a capacity evaluation. And, you know, there's either there's, um, maybe it's the MME test or some kind of test, and the person basically gets a grade, you know, has capacity or lacks capacity. 
And I do, I think when you look at reforms, we're moving away from that. Instead of asking, what is this person's IQ or what is their score on a capacity evaluation, looking at what can the person do with supports? You know, what, what is available to this person? So a, a person may have dementia, but a diagnosis of, di- of dementia does not necessarily mean that they have lost all decision-making ability with that diagnosis. In fact, that's not what it means. But what we, we have seen from studies is once a person receives that diagnosis, they're already treated as if they lack decision-making ability. So really uh, improving our capacity evaluations or turning towards more, um, more um, comprehensive evaluations of what a person can do with mm-hmm. some assistance. Um, I mentioned also limited orders. Anecdote, we are seeing from some states is when they do collect data, as they're finding that it's very seldom that a limited guardianship order is given, even though um, it's possible. And it would, I think, preserve much of a person's rights while perhaps keeping some of that court oversight that may be necessary. Um, And then, you know, we haven't talked much yet, but court monitoring and guardian accountability, the national College of Probate Judges has a whole has standards that were revised a few years ago, and I highly recommend looking at them. They're, they have really excellent language on the court's role in monitoring. And, um, and I want to say, again, you know, I should have perhaps mentioned this in my disclaimer, I, I certainly understand that courts have limited resources. And it's easy to say the court should be monitoring, but the question is, where are those financial and infrastructure resources going to come from to implement the monitoring. And that's a major issue. And then finally, when I talk about systemic changes, I like to bring up public guardianship. So public guardianship is uh, when guardians are funded by the states. And in some states, that means there's a whole a guardian, a public guardianship office or an agency that has full-time staff. And they, they rep- usually are appointed to either represent people who can't afford a guardian or there's no one else to serve as a guardian for them. In some states, there's not a separate office, but there's there's um, state funding to appoint private guardians for those who, again, cannot afford a guardian for themselves. And so I think that also is really important for systemic reform is addressing the need for, for finding guardians for those who can't afford it or don't have anyone in their network to serve as guardian. Yeah. No, I agree. Now, I wanted to just touch, you mentioned something about limited orders and limited guardianships. And I, I wanted to see if we could just spend a couple minutes talking about that too, because um, sure. so for our listeners, generally we have plenary guardianships, right? And then there is this, this limited. Mm-hmm. What Could you give us an example of maybe a scenario that a limited guardianship might be a more appropriate option than a plenary garden, guardianship? Oh, there's a, I think there's a couple of ways conceptually to think about it. I mean, first, and I sort of glossed this over, I, I should have probably talked about this in the beginning. Um, you know, most states, there's, you can have a guardian of the property and a guardian of the person. And the guardian of the property might be called a conservator uh, in some states, not in all. The language is different in many states. Um, so that's, that's one example of, of the court saying, okay, we need a conservator or this person needs assistance with their finances. And often that's when there's a risk of exploitation or there has been exploitation, unfortunately. And so the court comes in and appoints uh, um, someone just to 
take over the finances. But then, of course, there's this idea of more of a limited within let's focus on the guardianship of the person now. So you talk about limited, more limited orders. Perhaps um, someone, you know, pays their rent and uh, has a job and is is pretty self-sufficient when it comes to financial matters. But they may have some some diminished cognitive ability, whether it's because they have um, an intellectual disability or aging related cognitive decline where there, there are complex medical needs that need to be addressed and their, their medical treatment professionals are concerned that they can't consent to medical treatment. So, you know, you have someone where the doctor says, I just, she needs, um, the surgery, but, but I'm concerned she cannot, she doesn't have the capacity to consent to the procedure. I need a court appoint. You know, I need someone who a court appointed guardian is the only way I'm going to be able to perform the procedure, the surgery. And so, in that case, the court could make a limited order in a couple of ways. One is the court could appoint a healthcare guardian, a, a guardian to make healthcare decisions just mm-hmm. for one decision, you know, just for the the surgery. Or if there's some ongoing medical issues, the court could appoint a guardian who only makes decisions about medical issues, but that guardian cannot um, prevent or, or address visitation. You know, the guardian can't say who the person should or shouldn't be interacting with, which is a, a huge topic. It's, and so and that guardian has nothing to do with the person's finances. The guardian is just making decisions about the person's healthcare right. decisions. Right. That's a great example. And I, I also wanted to circle back to, so we mentioned a little bit about, um, the court's role in monitoring, um, and that is a huge mm-hmm. um, task for for the court system, as well as um, yes. you know a burden on on their you know the state's funding when it comes to that as well. Have you noticed? So in Pennsylvania, there has been um, a trend where now the annual reports that a guardian needs to file. Um, so in Pennsylvania, once a guardianship mm-hmm. is obtained, then there are annual reports for the estate and the person that have to be filed. And, um, you know, county by county, it ranged, but there wasn't much oversight. No one was really looking at these reports. So reports were being filed, but there wasn't anyone right. really looking at them. So now there's been a, a movement to have um, an online system where when numbers don't match up, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like a red flag. And then the court knows to look at look at certain things and and look into it a little bit more. Have you noticed any trends like that across the United States as far as now that technology is advancing, using technology in a way to help monitor those things? Yes. I mean, I think technology plays is, is crucial and it, it needs to be a part of the conversation about monitoring. Um, Minnesota has a, a, a state of the art program. It's, it's really probably the first of its kind in the nation um, it has an excellent um, accounting program. It's looking specifically at conservator exploitation. At that, at, you know, looking for it's an it's an auditing program to catch, to identify red flags and potential for ex- financial exploitation, and then addressing it. And so that they have a very sophisticated um, uh, data system to do that. And I think that you know, again, it's hard, you know, again, state courts are not always the beneficiaries of the most updated mm-hmm. technology. Um, and so technology would make a huge difference here. I mean, you think about 
how often do you get a call from your credit card company because you made a, a charge that seemed kind of funny, right? So I think a lot of that technology is here and could be applied to um, to court monitoring. But you, you, know, you need more than technology. And I this is actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to segue into um, Wings because yeah. I want to make sure I talk about it before we run out of time. The reason I'm segueing, so Wings are working interdisciplinary networks, guardianship stakeholders. At the Commission on Law and Aging, of course, we were thinking about, okay, how can we support states to effectuate true guardianship reform? Based on our years of research and work in the field, we came up with two major, we identified two major issues. One was facilitating um, that court community partnership. So making sure that the court had partners in the state among significant stakeholders to talk about monitoring and oversight and other um, procedural safeguards and other important aspects of guardianship reform that have to take place within the court. And then the second part was bringing together all the stakeholders, all the playholder, the players in the state who are serving people who have guardians, who are working on guardianship, but they may, perhaps they're working in their own professional silo. So connecting the, um, the court clerk with the director of disability services and the director of elder services and um, the local disability rights agency, adult protective services, long-term care stakeholders, hospitals, state um, public guardians, professional and family guardians, social security, even social security and the veterans administration, and of course, self-advocates coming together with judges and court staff and state bar associations, um, state units on aging to talk about, okay, what are the issues in our state? Is it that we're seeing too many plenary guardianships? Is it the lack of data? Are we worried that guardians are preventing individuals from interacting with people they choose to interact with? And what can, how can we work together to address these issues systemically and in a you know, long-term, ongoing basis? Um, and so that is what we've been working at here on the commission for the, last, for the last three years. We received funding from the Administration for Community Living, um, which is part of the, the Health and Human Services. And um, we were able to fund seven pilot programs to start to start or expand and enhance their own their wings projects. But I want to share that while we fun- we were able to fund seven amazing pilot programs, there are twenty six state programs that are either called wings or they may not be called wings. They may be a guardianship task force or have another name, but they are groups of interdisciplinary stakeholders that are forming partnerships with their, with state courts to work on guardianship reform. And we, again, we have a lot of information about this on our website. So if you're interested in getting involved, you can send me an email or you can go ahead and look on our website and look up your state and see if there is a WINGS in your state. And if not, we also have a replication guide if you want to think about starting one. Now you also, so, I mean, we talked a little bit about some of the challenges that come with Reform. And one of those challenges, mm-hmm. of course, being mm-hmm. funding for the state. Um, but what are some other challenges that you see um, to, to all of this mm-hmm. reform that needs to happen in the guardianship world? You know, I think a lot of it comes from the diverse array of people who end up in the guardianship system. It's, you know, it's hard to talk about what people need when you've got, it's across the age spectrum. It's, it's an, it's an issue that I think 
um, transverses race and socioeconomic status and class. It affects everyone. And that's why it's so important. But it also makes it hard to think about systemic reform because people's needs are very different. And then I think, and this is really what WINGS is all about, is you have folks working on guardianship reform, but they're they're in their own world because who has the time and the connections to get together to identify who those other stakeholders are, much less connect with the court and work on these issues, which is what's so exciting about seeing that happen now um, on a state level through WINGS is making those connections and getting folks together to talk and talk about real reforms about implementing reforms. And so tell me a little bit more, you know, as as an elder law attorney, you know, where mm-hmm. I'm interacting with individuals, I'm filing for guardianships and some of our other listeners are as well. You mentioned, you know, if we're interested in getting involved in reform that your website has some information on mm-hmm. um, local ways that we can do that. Are there other things that we as elder law attorneys should be doing to help with the efforts of the commission and just help locally with these issues? Sure. So one thing we're always we're always interested in is um, is uh, provi- is providing education and training. So if you have access to perhaps a listserv or your local your state bar association, perhaps the elder law division. You want to make sure that they are aware of all the resources we have to offer. Um, they're available online. We also not just uh, we also have several webinars that we've done on these topics. And you know, it could be a specific topic like how do you go about terminating a guardianship when it's appropriate, or um, starting a wings in your state, or guardianship abuse for that matter. So all of this is available on our website. We also, of course, are always very interested in judicial education. So if you have that connection to your judiciary and you think they would be interested in learning more about um, less restrictive options uh, um, and other and um, other monitoring and oversight and other kinds of guardianship reform, I'd also encourage you to, you know, say, hey, would you like us to put together a panel for your next judicial education event on guardianship reform? Right. And um, for all of you who are listening, I know that Daria has given out the the best way to find the website. I think you said it was just to kind of type mm-hmm. it in the search engine, the ABA Commission on Law and Aging. Is that correct? Yes. I'm, I mean, I'm happy to, to give you the site too, but I think it's, it's just easier to just... Um, to look it up. But if you'd like me to, would you like me to yeah, read it? Yeah, why don't you just that? so that way people can. Okay. All right. Let me, let me make sure I, cause you don't want to just, you don't want to just go to the, uh, or maybe, you know what, why don't you give them out your email? Cause I know you gave that out in the first podcast and then people can reach out to yeah. you if they want to get the link. Quickly. That yeah. I think that would be the easiest, you know, since we're part of the ABA, it's a huge, it's a website with a lot of different pages. So, um, so my email is dari, D-A-R-I dot pogash, P-O-G-A-C-H at AmericanBar.org. Please feel free to email me. It's part of my job to provide technical assistance to attorneys and other professionals and lay people who are interested in questions about these issues. Well, thank you all so much for listening to Outer Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague. Please subscribe on iTunes and you can find all of our past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. See you next time.